Good morning. Today's reading comes from Exodus 18, 1, 6, and 13 through 27. Moses' father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, heard about everything God had done for Moses and his people, the Israelites. He heard especially about how the Lord had rescued them from Egypt. Jethro had sent a message to Moses saying, I, Jethro, your father-in-law, am coming to see you with your wife and two sons. The next day, Moses took his seat to hear the people's disputes against each other. They waited before him from morning until evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he asked, What are you really accomplishing here? Why are you trying to do this all alone while everyone stands around you from morning until evening? Moses replied, Because the people come to me to get a ruling from God. When a dispute arises, they come to me, and I am the one who settles the case between the quarreling parties. I inform the people of God's decrees and give them his instructions. This is not good, Moses' father-in-law exclaimed. You are going to wear yourself out, and the people too. This job is too heavy a burden for you to handle all by yourself. Now listen to me, and let me give you a word of advice. And may God be with you. You should continue to be the people's representative before God, bringing their disputes to him. Teach them God's decrees and give them his instructions. Show them how to conduct their lives. But select from the people some capable, honest men who fear God and hate bribes. Appoint them as leaders over groups of a thousand, one hundred, fifty, and ten. They should always be available to solve the people's common disputes, but have them bring the major cases to you. Let the leaders decide the smaller matters themselves. They will help you carry the load, making the task easier for you. If you follow this advice, and if God commands you to do so, then you will be able to endure the pressures, and all these people will go home in peace. Moses listened to his father-in-law's advice and followed his suggestions. He chose capable men from all over Israel and appointed them as leaders over the people. He put them in charge of groups of 1,000, 100, 50, and 10. These men were always available to solve the people's common disputes. They brought the major cases to Moses, but they took care of the smaller matters themselves. Soon after this, Moses said goodbye to his father-in-law, who returned to his own land. This ends the reading. Message is one of those conversations with God. And this particular conversation begins on the focus of relationships. When we think about relationships, I don't know how many of us think about Moses having a family. But what we learn in this story was that Moses was married and that he had two sons. His wife's name was Zipporah. And um, it's not a common name. I don't think I've ever heard of anyone um, in our era that has been named Zipporah, but that was his wife's name. He also had names for his two sons. Now, something that's unique about um, ancient um, biblical history 
is that oftentimes fathers named their sons after a particular situation that they had experienced. For example, if you remember the story of Abraham and Sarah, and they were not able to have a child until late, late in life. And so when the angel of the Lord appeared to Sarai and told her that she was to have a child, do you remember what she did? She laughed. She thought it was funny that an old woman would be able to bear a child. And yet she did. And she gave birth to this son, whom they named Isaac, which in Hebrew means laughter. So Moses has named his two sons, which reflect some aspect of his life, their family life as well. The firstborn son is named Gershon, and that means translated, I have been a foreigner in a foreign land. You might say that this is the cry of an exile, a refugee, someone who has no place to truly call home. There is no safe haven. And so that describes the people of Israel before the Exodus. They were in bondage. They were in slavery to the Egyptians. They were not Egyptian. They did not come from Egypt, but they were forced to stay there. They had been given freedom from the drought back in the days of Joseph, but this happened 430 years later, so a lot of history transpires. And by the time that the story of the Exodus occurs, they have been in bondage now for many, many years. So Moses' firstborn son is, I am a foreigner in a foreign land. And his second son is named, literally, God is my helper. His name was Eliezer. Now that's a more common name. That's one I've heard in our era. Um, Eliezer or Eli, uh, it can be abbreviated too. But um, Eliezer is God is my helper. And, uh, and God was their helper because God is the one who rescued them from Pharaoh. He, God is the one who rescued the Israelites from bondage in Egypt. Jethro was Moses' father-in-law, and he seemed to have a personal interest in Moses. Jethro is a priest from Midian, not an Israelite priest, but a Midianite priest. But in this counter, it's interesting because his identity with the priesthood of Midian is mentioned just once. In this encounter, his role as a priest of Midian is just used one time. But his name, Jethro, as a name of interaction relationally, in relationship with his family, Jethro is used in the Hebrew scriptures 13 times. What that tells us is that the focus of this story is not about their identity, but rather the focus is about their relationships. They are family. They are physical family. And yet, 
they are forming a spiritual family, as we will see here. Jethro has been caring about Moses's, uh, caring for Moses' wife and children. Uh, we don't know for how long, uh, but probably when Moses went back to confront Pharaoh, to challenge Pharaoh, to release the Israelites from Egypt, um, at that point, he probably uh, sent his family back home to live with their father uh, for their safety uh, because the work that Moses was going to be doing was obviously not going to be safe. So Jethro had been caring for them. It was his daughter and his grandchildren. Who wouldn't do that? Um, even if you didn't care for your daughter that much, you'd do it for your grandchild, right? So Moses is definitely... Um, in debt to Jethro because Jethro has been caring for his family. We don't know, again, as I said, how long this has happened. Uh, perhaps Moses went to Egypt to free the Israelites from bondage um, with his family and then realized how unsafe it would be and then sent them away. Or he may have just gone to Egypt alone without his family, kept them uh, in Midian with his uh, with his in-laws. But now, out in the wilderness, they are being reunited. In the midst of Israel's wanderings, Moses and his wife and his sons once again come together. Jethro hears from his son-in-law, from Moses, what the Lord God has done for Israel. That's Right away in the first verse is how this is introduced, this chapter. Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, heard about everything God had done for Moses and his people, the Israelites. He heard especially about how the Lord had rescued them from Egypt. So when Moses saw his father-in-law come in into the village or the place where they were staying, when he saw them come in, Jethro and Zipporah and Gershon and Eliezer, Moses went up to Jethro, his father-in-law, and this is what it says he did. He bowed down low. Now, why would you bow down low to someone? That is a symbol or a sign of your humility. Uh, what, what Moses was saying to Jethro is, I am uh, indebted to you. I owe you so much because you have cared for my family in my absence. And so he bows down to let Jethro know that he honors him. And then he kisses him. And when he kisses him, the symbol is probably a kiss on each side of the cheek because that also says that you are greater than me, and I am honored to have you in my presence. And so when, when Moses would have reached out, he would have kissed um, Jethro on the right cheek and then on the left cheek, or depending on your position. And that would have also been a sign or symbol that, um, that this is um, a great um, aspect of submission for me because you have helped me in a way that um, that saved my family, that protected my family. 
Moses deeply respected Jethro. And this is how he expresses his gratitude. They asked, it says, they asked about each other's welfare. Jethro and Moses mutually care for one another. They love each other. They love their families. And they want the best for one another. And so they begin to reestablish family ties in this encounter. Moses's, Moses finds in his father-in-law, we could say today from our Christian perspective, Moses finds in his father-in-law a person of peace, one with whom he can share with all that the Lord God is doing. A person of peace is someone who is open to hearing about all that, is, that God is doing in our lives as, as people of God. So how, this is the question that comes to me that's, that's been kind of nagging me um, the last few weeks, is how will we reestablish family ties when we can come together as a church? Because I'm hoping that that is in the, if not distant future, or near future, uh, distant future, if not the near future. How can we come together once again as a church? And how can we remain connected as a spiritual family? Well, when we come back together, will we all be here? When we come back together, will we have a unified purpose? I mean, in some respects, you, they say you can never go back to the beginning, right? It's always going to be different. But how can we come together? and be a spiritual family? How can we come together and make a difference in this world for the sake of Christ? Moses then told Jethro everything that God had done to Pharaoh and to Egypt on behalf of Israel. He also shared about all the hardships and the suffering that had occurred in this period of time. When we think about that, I mean, it is significant that the people of Israel were freed from that bondage. They were given a new life. But in the midst of that new life, they encountered all kinds of new experiences, and some of them were not good. Some of them, um, they suffered. Uh, it was a challenge to get everybody organized to leave Egypt. I imagine some didn't really want to go. And what do you do? There's, according to the scriptures, some Egyptians come along with them. So are you going to invite your friends and neighbors that aren't Jewish to come with you? So as they travel then, the conditions, even though they've been in slavery, the conditions are not easy. They are not comfortable. And so they're camping because it's a wilderness and they're moving day to day, they're tenting, and they're making do with life, but it's a challenge. Not only that, but there comes a point when they run out of food. They have no bread to eat, and they cry out to God. And God answers their cries. He brings them fresh-baked bread from your favorite bakery. No, that's not what God did. God 
brought them this strange food called manna from heaven. And it's like a white flatbread. Um, it was uh, pretty tasteless, and, um, but it provided nutrients, and it gave them something to eat. After receiving the manna, they were relieved for a while. But then they began to grumble and complain again because the suffering began to, to increase. They, they just had bread to eat. Isn't there more to life than just bread and water? And so then God said that he would send quail at night. So they got the manna in the morning and they got quail to eat at night. And that seemed to satisfy their needs for a while. But then they came to a place where they ran out of water. Now, we're not going to last very long without water. We're not going to last long without food, but we're really going to wither away quickly without water. So they cry again to God for help. And, and God brings forth water from all places from a rock. So what Moses is able to share with Jethro is that God has done amazing things that every time that they have experienced suffering, that God has been there and he has brought sustenance for them. But that doesn't mean that the suffering goes away. It will continue because people of freedom, it doesn't mean that you no longer suffer. People of freedom, it means that you will suffer maybe even more in some respects. God is the one who answers our cries for help. God even answers when we complain, when we grumble to God. I think God must love us because he is the one who continues to provide for us just like he did for the Israelites. And what's interesting here is that as Moses shares the blessings of God with Jethro and as he shares the hardships and the sufferings with God to Jethro, one unique thing from this story. Moses never once mentions his name. It is quite clear that Moses understands that this is not about Moses. This is about God. And that's where the focus is um, and remains. So Moses declares, he announces, the Hebrew word is sapar, and that means that you declare about someone's actions, not just the good news about what has happened, but that God is the one who has acted. God is the one who has done this. And so Moses declares, announces the good news of God to Jethro, that they have been delivered. They have been given their freedom and that they are now on the way to the promise that God has given them. And it is called the promised land. Jethro rejoices over all the good that God has done to Israel. They rejoice over the deliverance of Israel from Egypt, and Jethro publicly gives thanks to God for delivering Israel from 
the hands of Egypt. He publicly, Jethro publicly confesses at this point that Yahweh, the Lord of gods, is the Lord of lords and the God of gods. There is no one greater. And Jethro at this point must put down his Midian identity because he offers to make an offering of thanksgiving, not to the Midianite gods, not to the Hittite gods, not to any other gods, but to the God of Israel. And so what Jethro does is he offers a sacrifice in thanksgiving for what God has done. And he declares that now there is no other God than Yahweh, the Lord God. But Jethro has noticed something else. The people are forming long lines. And they are waiting for Moses to make rulings on disputes that they are having with one another. So not only do we see that freedom means that it is not a... Just getting your freedom doesn't mean that you're going to be free from suffering. But... <laughs> Freedom also means that you're not going to be free from disagreements and disputes. And so what is happening is that Moses is deciding um, all these disputes, using them as a teaching opportunity to, to, to teach the people about God. And so these are teachings that will be set forth later on in the Ten Commandments and eventually in the Torah. But Moses isn't just dealing with disputes over stealing or over honesty he is also instructing the people about what it means to not bear false witness against your neighbor don't tell lies it also means we are not to covet our neighbor's possessions our neighbor's wife those things were being taught by moses in the midst of these disputes you could say that in this era, as we know today, the state and the church being separate here in the United States, in this era, the state and the church are one. And you can't resolve a public issue without dealing with its theological implications. The second thing is that the people often turn this into an organizational strategy. I mean, how many sermons, how many uh, books have been written, how many times have you heard people that refer to this as a way that you should reorganize your organizational structure chart for your corporation, whether it be a for-profit or a non-profit. But that is not, I, I'm going to argue, that is not what this story is about. I think it misses the point. And where it misses the point is it neglects the first half of the story, which is all about relationships that are being formed around God. That is the point of the story, is that we are talking here about the family of God, a spiritual family of God, and how that spiritual family works things out, lives their lives out, in public. Moses' role in the family 
is to teach the people God's decrees and to give them his instructions. Let's look at this as a spiritual family. When we think about this as a spiritual family, it changes the perspective because it's not uh, a structure, but it's about relationships and how do we live with one another. When we have disputes, how do we resolve those disputes? Are we teaching our children, our grandchildren, are we teaching them through our values what is important to us in, as people of faith? Because I think that's what is critical here. The spiritual family is the focus. Now, we attempted to do something like this um, at the beginning of the pandemic with our Acts ministry, where we had people calling or emailing um, others or texting. Uh, we had organized into a structure where uh, David Cole and Larry Person um, had found uh, visitors in a sense, um, people who could check in on other people. And, um, and that's still the goal of Acts ministry. It doesn't always work that way, but that, that has been our goal, is how do we connect with one another as a spiritual family, especially in a time where we can't physically be connected? Some of you are still reaching out, and I am grateful for that. Thank you for that. But not everyone is. And that is not a condemnation. Let me be clear. This is not a condemnation of people who started to reach out and stopped reaching out. Please don't take it that way. What this is about is where we need to grow as a body, as a spiritual family, where we need to grow to learn how we can better work together, relate with one another, share what our needs are, what our hopes are, what our praises and thanksgivings are. Again, this is not intended as judgment, but more as a perspective that as a spiritual family, we still have room to grow. Now, I know that it's difficult to be together, but that's one of the questions that I think this scripture, this conversation leads us to is when we can come back together, how can we live together and act together more like a spiritual family? Families living together and doing life together. What would it look like to follow Jesus as a family on mission? It would mean more and more of us becoming interested in learning further about discipleship, what it means to be a, a Christ follower. When we think about being a disciple in our modern sense of the word, we often think about uh, going to a classroom, getting um, some lessons taught to us from a curriculum. Good ideas, good thoughts, write them down, study them, memorize them so you can repeat them. But in the ancient biblical word, to learn meant something completely different. To be a disciple meant to follow someone, a teacher, a rabbi, 
and to learn from them the information, but to learn from them also through imitation. Imitating the teachings and the life of the teacher. So you're not just learning it from a distance that goes into your head, but that you're actually living it from your heart. That this Jesus means so much to us that we want to display how we seek to follow him, to learn from him, to grow as followers of him. Now that would mean reducing our busy schedules to make more time to hang out with one another. It's a challenge. And our sacrifices today are nothing compared to the sacrifices of Moses' day or the sacrifices of Jesus' day. In the gospel that's appointed for this Sunday, in Mark chapter 8, Jesus talks with his disciples about suffering on his behalf. Let me read a little bit of this. In Mark 8, 34, If any one of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross, and follow me. I think Jesus means business here. I mean, he's talking some serious points. Let me express several sharp probing points that he makes as he does this teaching. If you want to hang on to your life, then you will lose it. What do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? And another that he says, are you ashamed of me and my message? The cost of following Jesus is high. Thankfully, Jesus answers these questions that he presents to us with one answer. And his answer is that he goes to the cross for you and for me. He suffers. He suffers not only before his death, he suffers in his death to take away our sins, to bring us forgiveness, and to give us a new life. A new life for today that we can begin to live out and a new life in eternity with Jesus. And Jesus' answer tells us all about who we are today. Instead of being ashamed of us, Jesus is proud of you. Instead of worrying about our souls, Jesus says, today you will be in paradise with me. Believe that, because it's true. Now, instead of hanging your life on a cross, we don't have to suffer that. Instead, we can live a new life in Christ, in community with one another. That means we are set free. In Luther's words, we are free to be little Christ to one another.
Think about that. Being a little Christ, not a big one, just a little one, to your neighbor, to your family, to your spiritual family. At the heart of today's conversation with Moses is the declaration that the good news about God has become clear in his actions with Israel. That good news in this conversation was that they were experiencing freedom and deliverance for the first time in many, many years. And I'm here today to declare to you what Jesus has done. Jesus has saved your life from sin, from death, and from the power of the devil. Jesus has set you free. And if Jesus has set you free, you are free indeed. Spiritual brothers and sisters in Christ, go now and live your lives 